Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is Howard Parr, author of Top Ranking, a punk ska noir novel, and you are listening to the Pantheon Podcast Network. Hi guys, thanks for joining me on My Rock Moment. Okay, so today we're delving into the punk and new wave scene that hit Boston in the late 70s. And Michael Greco, who's an award-winning and internationally renowned celebrity photographer and director, is our guest. Now, he wrote a book called Punk, Post-Punk, New Wave, On Stage, Backstage, In Your Face, 1978 to 1991, and it's quite a departure from his celebrity work. It actually chronicles the Boston scene with intimate photographs and stories from bands and artists like the B-52s, Billy Idol, the Buzzcocks, the Cramps, the Dead Kennedys, as well as the venues that they called home back then. So Michael wasn't just photographing the scene, he was part of the inner circle. He's got a lot to share, so let's get to the interview. All right, we've got Michael Greco on today. And Michael, you are an award-winning commercial photographer and director, and you're noted for your celebrity portraits, advertising and editorial commissions, private collections, and fine art. And I know I just scratched the surface there. <laughs> but thank you for coming on My Rock Moment. Sure, sure, absolutely. I've uh, I've got a lot of my toes dipped into a lot of different of water. <laughs> oh, you do. And anybody that sees your portfolio, and we're going to put your websites in the show notes. Okay. I mean, has got to be impressed if that's even the word, because you are a true master of your craft. And I know you've done um, a number of books on even the use of light in photography. Yeah. My first two books were lighting books. One was The Art of Portrait Photography, which uh, sold out in within a year. And Um, Then I moved to doing a book with Watson Guptill called Lighting and the Dramatic Portrait, which was basically my the name of my seminar that I would always give. So the first two books were lighting books. The next book was a book of portraits at the Adult Video Awards and Expo. 
And, you know, I love shooting, as David Fahey says, you really like shooting subcultures. And I do really like shooting subcultures. So, Well, that's what I want to talk to you about. You know, speaking of subcultures, because I want to talk about these beautiful photographs that came before these books and anything else that you've done. Because you documented the punk and the new wave scene in the late 70s and beyond so beautifully. And that is what caught my eye. And that's what I want to dive into today. Because you did an incredible book. It was probably a couple years back at this point. Yeah, the book came out two two years ago in the middle of COVID, in October of 2020, I guess it was. So oh, about two, a little over two years. So right in that crazy vortex of time. Yeah. Yeah. And and the, the thing is, is that it is earlier work, but it's my fourth book. It's like, you know, we pulled the images out of the archive to uh we pulled the images out of the archive to uh, to deal with them. So, right, right, and that's what was so interesting to me because it's titled "Punk, Post Punk, and New Wave: On Stage, Backstage, In Your Face, 1978 to 1991." And it really pays homage to this punk scene on the East Coast, specifically in New York and in Boston. And I was impressed because I know you were very young when you were taking all these photos. But you had Blondie, the Talking Heads, the Sex Pistols, um, Wendy O. Williams, the Plasmatics, the Clash, the B-52s. I mean, it's such a departure from the work that people know you for now. Yeah, well, well the first 13 years of my career, I was a, a news photographer. I w- mm-hmm. started working for the Associated Press in 1978, in January of 78. It started out as an internship, but I was basically doing freelance assignments and I was what they call a stringer um, that would go on assignments and 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 shoot, you know, shoot for the Associated Press. So during the day, I was being trained as a photojournalist and, you know, by some amazing photojournalists. And at night I was a club kid. So I had sort of the chops of, you know, a, a skilled news photographer. And at the same time. Um, you know, I was into this music scene. So I was a part of this music scene. I was into the music scene. I, you know, I was documenting it. I was picking up assignments for Boston Rock Magazine. I was um, working for WBCN, the K-Rock station in Boston. And, you know, it, it was a, it was a labor of love. It, I say it sort of gave me a purpose of being there, but I already had a purpose in being there because I loved the music. So do you think you would have been there if you weren't documenting it with your camera? I, yes, I would have been there. (laughs) (laughs) And how did being a news photographer kind of inform the way you approached, you know, very, very different subjects? Well, I I mean, it gave me the technical skills, you know. Uh, So in all of that time, we were shooting film. And especially the early part, the cameras didn't really auto expose. They didn't auto focus. Like you really had to know your stuff and you were in all sorts of situations where there was either bad lighting or, um, you know, you're trying to take a portrait and, you know, you're, you're in a tough situation light wise, um, or there are stage lights and you know have to know how to push your film and use the right lenses. And so that the that working for the Associated Press gave me those skills and techniques 
Um, but the interesting part about it, as you said earlier, that most people might not know me for this seeing this body of work. For me, the interesting part about it is throughout this project or throughout these images, you see my desire to have a session with people and to do their portrait. And I think that this was the beginning of my moving towards portraiture. Podcast listeners, Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house, and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. How was it, though, to go back and look at all that work and essentially relive it? Because it wasn't like you were just doing a job. You were going to a concert or a gig and taking a picture and you were leaving. You were immersed in that scene. I was immersed in that scene. And it was amazing. I was part of the scene. I was I had friends in the scene. I hung out with Billy Idol every time he came to town. I hung out with all the bands. I hung out with the Buzzcocks and would do bring Tina uh, Weymouth and Chris Friends of the Talking Heads to after parties and 
had adamant putting pressure on me to get him a date with my DJ friend, Carla Nolan. You know, I was, I, I was part of that scene and it, it gave me street cred to be a photographer and be part of the scene. Sure. Um, because if we're backstage in the band with the band, the band knows I'm close to all the DJs that they respect and they need the airplay of, and, you know, but it, it, we, you have to realize I did it with no expectation that these bands would ever live on. Like no expectation that this music would catch on. This was a rebellious, this was an anti-radio, anti-record company movement, right? Rap did the same thing to AM radio that punk did to FM radio. And this was an anti-establishment movement. And we didn't know that, you know, the clash, you know, or the talking heads or the sex pistols would live on in infamy or in fame um, 30 or 40 years down the line. Right. They, but we loved the music. So it didn't matter. So to look at it now, it's like, holy tamole, holy shit. I was involved in a movement, which was, it's cool. It's gave me a great perspective and it's put me in touch again with a lot of friends from Boston and some of the musicians and things like that. Hey guys, we're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsor. We'll be right back. Okay, guys, let's get back to the interview. Boston was an interesting place. It was the first concert date of every tour, whether you were a U.S. band or an English band. I'll tell you why. A, because the AR guys and the music company guys, women, whoever, were lazy shits. And they set up a tour and they just went with it. You know what I mean? Like they had a formula. Next, it was an hour earlier flight from London. And it was, and third, it was the warm up for New York. So the bands would play Boston, um, uh, Providence, often New uh, New Haven for Yale, and then New York. And they would get over their jet lag, and they would be fresh for New York, and they could play for all the record company AR guys in New York. So. A, it was the first show in the United States of every tour. In the summer, they would they would go down around the north of the country, back down around, and in the winter, come up through the south and back out through Boston. And then in the winter, they would do the opposite. They'd go through the south, up California, and travel in their bus across um, the northern part. So at that point, it's summer, and out through Boston. So, you know, so that was one aspect of it. It was first show of all of these new bands in the United States. But it was also, you know, it's the one city of, uh, it has the most institutions of higher learning. So mm-hmm. it, it it is the quintessential college town, right? And because of being the quintessential college town, it's a city of youth culture. And being a city of youth culture, um, 
we I think we had the biggest scene. I, I was part of the scene in New York. Uh, at times, I would be in New York all the time. I think Boston just had more clubs that played punk. They had more uh, venues. There were more people. There were five shows happening every night. It, it wasn't just the CBGBs in the early days. It was the Ratskeller, the Channel, Spit, um, the Underground, the Paradise, right. E.T. the Bears, the Middle East, uh, Man Ray. You know, there were dozens and dozens of clubs because it was a party town. It was a kid town, you know. That makes total sense. I was embarrassed to say I really didn't know that the scene possibly rivaled or sounds like it did and was maybe even bigger than NYC. I mean, that was really a surprise to me. Yeah, CBGB's got all the credit, but but the Ratskeller was just as strong. I mean, you know, the everyone played their first show there. The police played their first show at the Ratskeller. I was at the Underground with The Cure, and the nights I wasn't shooting stills, I was shooting video. So I have the first concert videos in the United States of The Cure playing The Underground. The Underground was like, it was... It was a two-bedroom apartment downstairs that they made into a club. Like it, it, it across the street from the paradise. Oh yeah, it was like it was like uh, DIY. The whole scene was DIY. And you mentioned when you you mentioned the paradise, you said in your book, or you mentioned in your book that you two played their first concert ever in the U.S. at the paradise. Yes, Is that right. I was there. My friends in the somebody's opened up for them. How was that? It was amazing. You, you know, they obviously they weren't popular. Right. First album. I had a friend slash editor. So the editor of Boston Rock worked at Newberry Comics, which was like the alt comic book, alt music record store. And Greg also had a one week uh so the Demimone that Oedipus started on Saturday nights spun into the Late Risers Club, which was yeah. the first daily, um, the first daily punk radio show in the world. So they had a different DJ every day. Greg Reedman, who was the editor in chief of Boston Rock, which was produced by Newberry Comics was also a DJ and I'd walk, I lived down the street. I lived on Newbert street and I'd walk in and I'm like, Greg, what do I have to buy this week? And it was like an import was 30 bucks back then. And you know, the, the dollar was valued differently. 30 bucks was a lot, of, a money. lot of money. Yeah. And I would be like, Greg, what do I have to buy? And he would be like, Oh my God, you have to get, this U2 album, or you have to get. So he turned me on to Boy. I bought Boy before I saw U2. And the album blew me away. You gotta, you gotta realize that punk, post-punk, new wave was about rebellion, but on every level. So you either had a message like the Sex Pistols, you know, with the lyrics, or you had a musical rebellion. I mean, the U2 record produced by Steve Lillywhite is like a groundbreaking, tasty, 
um, morsel of unconventional production and sound, right? The, you know, he, I believe Steve Lillywhite also did the uh, Joy Division albums. Mm -hmm. So, so, you know, he was a, a music producer in the day, I believe he's passed, but, but the, the, the rebellion wasn't only, you know, God save the queen, uh, anarchy in the UK, I'm going to destroy blood supply. It was also, you know, mood, sound, art, expression, you know, it was the B-52s using a toy piano. Doot, doot. Yeah. And, and, you know, it was, it was creativity on every level. And, you know, it was, and it was all music that couldn't get played because it wasn't Rush, Journey, um, Sticks, Kansas, Boston. (laughs) Which I'm sure you weren't partial to. Pablum, Pablum, (laughs) Pablum, produced by record companies to ensure the sale of records. (laughs) <laughs> and really, that's how it came about. It was pablum. <laughs> that's so interesting to me. You um, you mentioned the B-52s, and Fred Schneider wrote the foreword to this book. Yes, he wrote the foreword to my book. That's right. Which is, an, I am a huge B-52s fan. And when I saw that, I thought, my gosh, how did he, how did he get him? Is he one of the uh, the guys you've stayed in touch with? Um, you know, I hired, so when I was in the trenches, um, I, a friend of mine, um, was Jim Sullivan, who was the, the Boston Globe had two music critics at the time, uh, Steve Morris and Jim Sullivan. Um, so Jim was the sort of, he didn't get the plum assignments cause he was the number two. So he wound up covering, you know, Steve took the Rolling Stones, you, you know what I mean? And <laughs> and the interview with the Rolling Stones. So so Jim got the the a lot of the punk scene and the new music. And we were friends and I wound up dating his girlfriend at one point. And, you know, we were hey, just. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's it, uh, it, he was the natural to write the forward and he brought he brought Fred in. You mentioned Billy Idol because I read it, you know, everything in there because there were people that contributed stories and then you wrote a lot of your own, you know. Well, I wrote the interstitials. I wrote the the artist statement at the beginning Mm -hmm. and then Mm -hmm. I wrote the interstitials. But like because Garrett uh, McGrath decided to break up the book into venues because there was no other logical way. He didn't he saw thought that that was the most logical way of doing it. Right. So um, those venues needed sort of like an interstitial and an opening to the venue and to break it up. So I wrote all of those. Jim edited. Thank you. Thank God for Jim. <laughs> but I wrote all of those. You wrote a story about you and Billy Idol. Hilarious. Well, I, I wrote the one story I could write <laughs> about me. <laughs> 
Yeah. Fair enough. Fair <laughs> enough. And it was still pretty wild. <laughs> I, mean, I have more had... stories we decided not to tell. <laughs> I mean, if you want to, you can. This is a safe space. <laughs> but the one in the book about how you actually became quite friendly. Well, I was friendly. Billy would come to town and I would get a call from Ace Penna, his road manager. And he's like, you know, because after the first time we were up all night, we're hanging out, we're doing blow and drinking. And, you know, they would always put him up at the Howard Johnson's in Kenmore Square, like a stupid hotel. Um, So, you know, after the first time of hanging out all night, every time. And remember, the bands came through at the beginning of the tour and out at the end of the tour. So they hit Boston usually twice. Um, I would get a call from Ace Penna and the audience, our, our amazing audience has to realize no cell phones, no yes. email addresses. If you didn't have the home phone of someone and you didn't call them regularly to know if they moved you lost touch with them. So I lost touch with almost everyone when I moved to Los Angeles. But I would get a call from Ace Penna. Billy's in town tomorrow. He would like to see you. There's two tickets waiting for you at the venue with backstage passes, and he'd like to hang out afterwards. So, I mean, that was every tour date I hung out with Billy. So I was already good friends. So when I tell that story about him screaming, coming through the back, he's telling me, you're my mate. You can't photograph me all the time. <laughs> you have a personal friendship, in other words. Like, stop asking me to take fucking pictures. And he grabs the milk t- milk crate and he throws it at me. And I said, Billy, what the fuck? He almost hit me in the head with it. He said, your girlfriend. I said, Billy, I don't have a girlfriend. And all he did was look at me and go, oh, shit. <laughs> whose girlfriend was it another <laughs> photographer's <laughs> and she was putting pressure on him to take pictures and he wouldn't have any of it which is fine just wasn't me i was just happy hanging out with billy backstage before the show after the show you know we hung out <laughs> and there was a mia culpa right he came oh, back yeah yeah well he came back he felt was like he shook his head he felt really bad and the mia culpa was through Bill Coin, I think his name is, um, who was a famous manager. And as I described, Bill Coin comes back with a gallon bag of cocaine. And it wasn't like a gallon bag with the little bottom at the, you know, it was like you went to your grandmother's house and she put brisket in a bag because you were going to college. And she <laughs> wanted to make sure you had enough to eat for a month. It was like a bag of cocaine with like a lot of a gallon bag with a lot of cocaine in it. You know, this is Bill Coin, the very famous music manager. And he's like, Billy feels really bad. You want some blow? And I'm like, my heart is racing out of my chest at that point. And I'm like, no, Bill, I, I'm really good. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really good. <laughs> I'd kill myself if I took some blow right now. Exactly. <laughs> Are there other moments like that that would stick with you? I mean, like I said, going back through those photos, it's like a retrospective of a time in your life. Well, I, the majority of the images are shot between 78 and 83, 
when I got a staff job as a staff photographer at the Boston Herald. Um, and I would go out, but the wildness had to stop. The doing coke every night, drinking all night, being up all night, because I really was excited to have this staff photography job. Like it, it was, it was sort of a dream come true for a young photographer. So um, I didn't stay there long. I, People Magazine scooped me up, but um, that changed me. I became, you know, less of the party guy. If I went and I photographed someone, it was like I wasn't hanging out, you know, all all the time. And um, you know, and that goes to another story about Billy. I'll tell it quickly, and I'm not giving you too many of the details. <laughs> I was I was dating someone who I was bored of, and she called me up and she was like, it just it. It was not very exciting. I'm going to leave it at that. And um, she called me up. She's like, what are you doing tonight? I'm like, uh, 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 Billy called and he has tickets for me and wants to see me. She's like, can I come? Can I come? I'm like, all right. So the end of the night. Now, I'm at, I'm at the Boston Herald. I have to be at work at 10 o'clock. I live in Dorchester, with, you know, so it's a little bit of a drive to drive up. And I... The show's over. We're hanging out backstage. And Billy's, we get in a cab. Billy's like, let's, let's go. Let's go back to my place and we'll, you know, we'll um, you know, hang out and party. I'm like, all right. And the more I thought about it, I had little interest anymore in her. And I couldn't be up all night. I looked at we pull up to the Howard Johnson's in Kenmore Square. And I looked at Billy and I said, Pal, I'm gonna let you guys have a party. And he goes, your girl mate? And I said, have fun. <laughs> and she said, really? <laughs> she, didn't, she didn't care. She didn't care about me. She was like, really? That's cool? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was almost the last time I saw Billy. I was in the middle of what they were trying to negotiate Billy Idol's involvement in the um, doc the four-part series called Punk on Epics. I was the original creator of that show. And they were like, whatever you do, we're negotiating with Billy. Don't really bring it up. Don't reach out to him. And I happened to bump into him at an art event, uh, Plastic Jesus opening. And I said, do you remember me? And he goes, oh, yeah, yeah. And I'm like, dude, you don't remember me. (laughs) (laughs) We were really good mates, my friend. You know, you, you, it's been too long. So I gave you my girl. I gave you my girl. <laughs> <laughs> Which I'm sure he doesn't remember either. I bet he remembers. He, he probably got, had the same feelings I did. And the mirror's reflection I'm a-dancing with myself And when there's no one else inside In the crowd and lonely night Well, I wait so long for my love vibration And I'm dancing with myself Dancing with myself 
we brought, so I would do things like, and you can see the pictures in the book. I'd, I'd hang out with um, the Buscocks all day. So they would go to do an interview at WTBS and there's a picture of them through the window in the, in the booth. And then they would go to WBCN and I would photograph them at WBCN and I brought them back to their hotel and, and did a portrait of them, you know, with a mirror. Steve Diggle saw the image at Photo London and he's like, we hated that hat that, that Pete's wearing. We hated it. He, but it looks kind of good on him now, like, you know, 40 years later. So, so I'd hang out with them. Then at night, I, in that case, I was working with a friend of mine who had the first video cameras and I shot the Buzzcocks on video and I had spent all day with them. I was the camera on stage. Well, you know, I had a close relationship. There was trust. Then we bring them back to a party afterwards. All night, Pete Shelley is handing me pieces of paper, A, his address, B, his phone number. He's like, come visit me and da, da, da. I was such like, I, I wasn't a nerd when it came to, uh, um, uh, you know, the crazy music and drugs and partying, but I was a little bit of a nerd sexually. And I didn't realize, it took me like 20 year, years to realize Pete Shelley was hitting on me. Oh. <laughs> that he was bisexual and he was hitting on me. And, and, and I said to Diggle, who, and he's like, yeah, that was Pete. <laughs> So the, the fact that so many of those people who you'd like to connect with and joke around and have passed, sure, you know, that's, that's really been tough. And it's been also tough getting a hold of, of, you know, someone like Billy who, you know, there's so many layers of, of, um, you know, there's so many layers of protection, so to speak. One thing I wanted to ask you about, um, you mentioned WBCN, and this is not punk, but you did mention that when you, you were there, you got to see Stevie Nicks record Edge of Seventeen. Yes. And that must have been phenomenal, because that was 81 that that song came out. It, it, it was pretty amazing, and I never know how they do it in radio land but you know they were able to play the record and drop her voice out on the record and have her sing live in the booth uh the vocal so i you know and and it would just happen i'd be hanging out with oedipus and he's like come back to the station we're bringing stevie nicks back you gotta come so i would do publicity pictures for wbcn which was the k-rock station mm -hmm. i mean the interesting thing there too is wbcn was the straight K-Rock station. They were the bad FM station. And then, <laughs> and then Oedipus at WTBS started getting a Nielsen rating. 
He started getting a Nielsen rating because he was interviewing. Now, this is at a 50-watt channel in Cambridge. Wow. And he started getting a Nielsen rating because he was interviewing the Ramones and the Clash and the Talking Heads. And so the general manager, Tony Berardini, and the, the execs at WBCN were like, let's hire this guy as a DJ. This music is getting played on college radio. We should be progressive. So he gets the he, he gets a call from the guys at WBCN and he's like, I'm not going to be a DJ there. I'm going to be your program director. Yeah, good for him. And if you want me to come there, I'm going to be your program. So what he did was he mixed in all of this new music into the record company pablum that existed at the time and started getting this stuff played on commercial rock radio. See, it, it reminds me so much of when rock and roll was just coming on the scene too in the 1950s. And it was really relegated to these small, you know, um, independent stations that right. were playing this music and the, the big stations were just ignoring it until they couldn't ignore it anymore. Well, that's exactly what, that's exactly what this was. That's exactly what this was. So it just seems like, I mean, and magical may not be the right word, but for some, maybe it was, but it seems like a very magical, magical time, a moment frozen in time. And yes, we talked so much about the CBGB, um, but it was so great to learn more about and see in these colored and black and white photos, everything that was happening in Boston. And it makes so much sense that as they came through, you know, and what they must have looked like coming through on the first night, as opposed to making their way back around at the end of the tour. We weren't conscious of that. It was like one <laughs> big party every night. We weren't really conscious of them. Hey, this has been a long tour for them. It's like, you know, you've got um, uh, The Cure not able to get into the underground, this little club to play. And I shot video of that also. They the cure not getting into the underground to play because one of the members was too young and didn't have an ID. Oh my god, he wasn't 18, you know. So it's like it's it it's 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 like those experiences were kind of kind of magical, you know. As I was doing some digging to um, on your site, I found an amazing video, and I don't know where you where you were, um, you know, or when it was taken, but it was Johnny Rotten and Marky Ramone going at it. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was at the premiere. That was at the premiere of the punk, the, the punk thing. Yeah, and you know. Uh, John likes to be an antagonist, but then as Greg Reedman says in the interview it, it, that I did with hit with Greg Reedman, the DJ, he's like, after the show was over and we turned off the microphones, he's like, he's it, Greg says, he comes up to me 
stiff handshake, says that was great. How many people listen to your station? Like he was all business. Like it was it was the facade, and then there's the the real business person, Johnny Rotten. That's hilarious because everybody on the everybody on the panel was looking so uncomfortable. You oh, know, that- yeah, he just went after it. But that's him. He he's a bit of a he's a bit of an antagonist. Let's put it that yes, way. and a showman. Well, I enjoyed it thoroughly. <laughs> <laughs> I was there as as one of the executive producers. I was there in the front, so that's how that came about. So, what's next with everything you've done here? You're continuing to promote the book and everything else you're doing around the book. Um, I so th- I mean, this will continue. There's two. Um, we're very fortunate. Um, I was in a show at a museum called La Termica in Malaga, Spain. So that opened a year ago and it was supposed to close in May or June. And it was so popular, they extended it through October. So they printed and framed an entire show with three light boxes and 107 prints and frames. And we've created, we've created that. And that moves to Lisbon for a show in October. Um, So I have a traveling museum show around Europe. And then, um, the Southeast Museum of Photography at Daytona State and the Lancaster Museum of Art collaborated in framing, printing and framing a whole nother show. <clears throat> so I have two museum shows of over a hundred images that are printed on beautiful Ilford gold fiber gloss paper. They're one of my sponsors. I, I reached out to them because I love the paper so much. They're beautifully framed. And they have crates and they travel. Um, I am in talks with uh, Nick Fahey and David Fahey of the Fahey Klein Gallery about editing the more celebrity icon work that I have. Um, you know, the, the the more portraits, the more creative portraits I've done. So mm-hmm. that's going on, you know. But that, again, like, it'll take us three or four years to edit that work. Sure, sure. Get a no, book. Get it. These printed. are labors of love. Sure. So, uh, you know, I'm concentrating on uh, this book. The website for our for our amazing uh, listeners that have hung in here. The website is daysofpunk.com. All one word, obviously. Daysofpunk.com. Days plural. And the book, punk post punk. You did it so well. You did do it well. Po- punk post punk. New wave on stage, backstage, in your face, 1978 to 1991. Um, you know, that'll continue to sell. And I'm, I'm going to, until I have another product to put out, which I'm not anticipating for years, we're promoting this product and working on the museum shows and gallery shows and things like that.
for me, I do love punk and I'm going through each, I mean, I have it right here. So I'm looking at it. Each beautiful photo. I've never seen the scene captured this way. And it was wonderful because it was such a history lesson for me. And the way you broke it up into various venues, I couldn't agree more because I didn't know about a lot of these venues. Yeah. You know, and what transpired there. So I encourage anybody who is a fan of, you know, punk or new wave. Oh my gosh, this is such a treasure. And I know you mentioned the website, but again, everything will be in the show notes. And given that this is my rock moment, Michael, I have to ask you a couple of quick questions here. Absolutely. I know you're a a punk fan, but what was your first concert? Oh my God. Deep Purple. That's a oh. good one. I was studying guitar and and okay. I'm not, I love music. I realized I'm not a musician. I was studying guitar and I was learning that on the guitar. Dun, 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 <laughs> dun, 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 dun. <laughs> that was my first concert. <laughs> I started taking guitar lessons during the pandemic and that was one of the songs that I learned. <laughs> well, how old were you? 15. Okay. You're still 14, exploring. You're still figuring 14, it out. 14, 14. But at that, at that, in that age, I was headed to, um, you know, all these jazz clubs, Sweet Basil and the Village Vanguard. And, and, you know, in my, in my, in, through high school, me and my buddies would go to like the kitchen, which was a art, avant-garde art performance space and listen to the art ensemble of Chicago and Ornette Coleman. And, you know, I've seen Mingus and Thelonious Monk and uh, sat next to Keith Jarrett at the Village Vanguard and Chick Corea. And, you know, that's what I was interested in. And, and, you know, general radio to me, when you start listening to music that intense, the raw raw kind of sticks and Kansas and Russian journey and you know put them all and Boston the band Boston not the city yeah put them all in one lump and go oh my god and there's a reason that that those bands turned out it's because the record companies from the 60s realized they can make more money selling records than sporting events movie tickets or all theater events combined record sales were more so they would hedge their bets and produce the band wasn't a very organic way of doing it they would find good musicians they would make they would make sure they had songs that were tested they would you know it was like overproduced pablum it had nothing to say and then they had to buy the airwaves from the DJs with cocaine women and money right so <laughs> they had to I do mean- they- they had to do payola. They, if, if our audience wants to like learn about that era musically, they should listen to the Clash's song, Hitsville, UK. And it talks about how screwed up the record industry was, you know? Yeah. And the record, the, they, the lyrics are brilliant, you know? They're just brilliant, so. I mean, I am partial to Boston because they did record a song called Amanda. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> But that's neither here nor there. All right. First concert. What about the first album then that you went out and bought? Because obviously when it comes to music, you're an old soul. Yes. So I was maybe 12 or 13 for Christmas. I got Santana Abraxas, the Abraxas album with Black Magic Woman on it. Um, And then I got Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young. So Mm. 
at that, that deja year vu or yeah or maybe their first yeah. i think it was deja vu it was deja vu you know it's a, good just, it's a good album. i wrote a post on social media about becoming friends with david crosby and and um you know spending time with him taking him to a couple of lakers games going out to really? dinner with him. yeah and um yeah took him and his wife and and then him and his son and um and be getting close to him and him being you know that first one of those two first two records of mine how was he spending time with him he's uh he's like um uh he was a little bit of a curmudgeon like you know gruff kind of you know but amazing and you know talk told stories about um you know we shared our mutual closeness and and you know years of time with jim marshall he would tell me stories about john coltrane and playing in clubs and complain about spending his fortune that he made on drugs and women and alcohol and you know and blow, blowing all his money and you know but he's was amazing guy you know one of those guys that's like gruff on the outside but a sweet you can tell he's a total sweetheart inside i really liked david and it was uh, very sad when I heard he passed two weeks ago. Yeah, it was sad for a lot of people. You know, I think it was, he was one of those last pioneers of, you know, rock. He was the most outspoken, you know, he was the most willing to really document the time and and was very, very much an open book about his life. So it's, I mean, look, I can understand regretting all the years of drugs and women and all of that, but. Oh, he, I'm sure he doesn't re regret that. He oh, just okay. I thought you were saying he does. Time. I'm like, man, that biopic was interesting though. <laughs> <laughs> he just, he just regrets, he just regrets, you know, spending all this fortune. <laughs> All the money down the drain. I get it. Yeah. <laughs> That's all he regrets. Or regrets. He wasn't the only one. He was not the only one. But um, yeah, I had heard you're out in LA too. And I had heard the night he died that a lot of the Laurel Canyon residents got together and they opened their doors and their windows and they just blasted Crosby's music. Really? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I wish I was there. That would have been an incredible moment. No. Uh, Michael, thank you so much for coming on. I'm going to keep tabs on you because you have a lot go going on. And I, I hope that I know it's years in the making, but that, you know, the show makes its way to L.A. Um, well, it, it, it has. So uh, just uh, for our audience's sake that the show has um, it, it's close enough, an hour drive. It's in Lancaster. It opens on Saturday, okay. February 4th at the Lancaster Museum of Art and History, their Cedar building, which is a little smaller building, but they do musical performances there and things like that. Um, and I think it's from four to six, so that if you're from LA, you can drive out for the afternoon, drive back, either have dinner there or get back to LA early enough. But four to six Saturday, I don't know when we're when you're airing, but Saturday the 4th, um, and then um, um, it'll be up for a month and a half at least. So that was my question. Okay, as long as it's it's up for a while too. Yeah, um, yeah. I'll put that information in because this might come out after the fact. Got it. But Lancaster's not too far, no. So it's worth the drive. Yeah, and, and eventually, you know, we keep expanding the show. So we, um, I keep making videos for the show and things like that. Um, I, uh, the goal is, is to add, you know, audio visual assets and things like that. We, I commissioned 
the guys from Mission of Burma to do six soundscapes. Mm -hmm. So we have what are called unidirectional speakers that you have to be directly under them to hear them. And when you walk under them, there are these low level, weird ambient soundscapes. There's a series of videos I'm creating called What is Punk? And um, we have a wall video that goes up um, that that plays also in the performance. So it, it's a little bit of an experiential, you know, uh, performance. We're trying to um, not make it still photograph solely still photographs on the wall when you're talking about the punk era and music and a cultural phenomenon. Yeah, sure. It should be an experience. Yes. Most definitely. Michael, thank you for coming on. This was a lot of fun. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Thanks, everybody, for listening, and a big thank you to Michael Greco for coming on. And as I mentioned, links to his website, where you can buy this beautiful book, uh, his four-part punk documentary, all of that are in the show notes, so check those out. And guys, please don't forget to subscribe and rate me wherever you are listening to this. And if you want more info on upcoming episodes or to see some cool, rare rock photography, visit me on Instagram at LA Woman Rocks. All right, that's all for now, and we'll see you at the next episode. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. 
Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.